Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, working toward a renewal of Upham's Corner making seatbelts on school buses mandatory in Massachusetts, and a local girls volleyball team is also taking a knee. The latest local news you may have missed this week. Later in the show, the new movie Marshall tells the story of one of the first victories the legendary Supreme Court justice gained early in his career. This is kind of an origin story of a real-life superhero, Thurgood Marshall. He would walk into these courtrooms, and his intent was, I'm going to make you change your mind. Director Reginald Hudlin joins us to talk about the movie, which is in theaters now. But first, joining me in the studio, Mike Dean, Massachusetts Statehouse reporter for WGBH News. Hello again, Mike. Hey, Kelly. Lauren Dzinski, reporter for Politico, Massachusetts, and editor of the Politico, Massachusetts Playbook. Welcome back, Lauren. Thank you for having me. And Seth Daniels, senior reporter for the Independent News Group, which includes the Revere Journal, the Chelsea Record, and the Everett Independent. Hi, Seth. Hello, Kelly. And Seth, we're going to start with you. All right. Um, who knew uh, the impact of the NFL players uh, deciding to take a knee in, mm-hmm. on many teams across the country has had some local reverberations. I didn't realize that some local reverberations were here in Chelsea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they would say they influenced the NFL. Okay. All right. Because <laughs> they came first. Okay. But uh, who knows? It was actually, I think, probably Colin Kaepernick yes. who inspired them some time ago, and they begin taking a knee this year during their games um, when the national anthem is played. It's not played at every game, but um, there have been reverberations. Um, they do. Chelsea's odd because it's an urban school, but it was years ago put into a conference that's mostly private schools and most, mostly north and suburban. So there are some schools, at least one of them, has said, we'd rather you didn't come to our place and we'll just forfeit. But we'll come to your place if you, you know, given you're taking the knee, mm-hmm. um, doesn't line up with their values on that particular school. But the, the girls have vowed to keep doing it. They all have different reasons. There's 11 of them. Um, their most recent um, taking a knee was, was about uh, a week ago. And it's funny, you know, I mean, a lot of people support it in Chelsea. Uh, a lot of people don't support it in Chelsea. And they've had mixed reactions as they travel, um, you know, far and wide. One of the interesting things is that some of the students in the school don't support it. Um, they've had other teams that have said, oh, we want to do it too. The cheerleaders actually did it before a game um, in response to them. And then the football team did not agree with it, and they did not do it. And, and so you're getting a whole different reaction. I think that's kind of the way it's been for each one of these protests. You get what you might not expect from some and, and what you would expect from others. So, Well, first, yeah. uh, the girls are it's mostly people of color, right? Most of the girls are. Um, are I believe, absolutely. Yeah, yeah the so. entire team is girls of color mm-hmm. or different religions. So, say, um, there's uh, two girls who are Muslim. They have special equipment to wear during the game. So all of them, when they go 
primarily to these private schools or, or any other school um, you know, in the suburbs. They look different. They feel different. So that was where they're taking their message. They said, it's not so much for Chelsea. We're at home in Chelsea. We want to let other people know um, how we feel and um, what we're up against. So I mentioned that because the original purpose of the protest has been lost, something, even on the mm-hmm. national scale. Yes. Colin Kaepernick took a knee, silently, quietly, did not draw attention to himself. Somebody else wrote about him. This is how this started mm-hmm. um, because he was protesting police brutality yes. and particular focus on um, the killings of unarmed black men. Mm-hmm. That is also the motivation for a lot of the black players in the NFL, yes. who, by the way, while all this is going on and people have been infuriated about the flag business, have presented Roger Goodell with a 20-page memo mm-hmm. citing their concerns about these social issues. That sure. n- never gets reported no. in the middle of this. So that needs to be clear about what the issues are. And these mm-hmm. young women, as I read, had similar kinds of concerns sure. that have to do mm-hmm. mostly with being a young Young woman of color. So I want to put that on the table so people understand, mm-hmm. who, the folks who are listening, where they're coming from. Nonetheless, mm-hmm. this is an interesting story. So Lauren, what's your response? I mean, I think mm-hmm. this is the intrinsic nature of mm-hmm. protest itself. The fact that not everyone is responding in a certain way. You know, at the end of the day, the point of protest is to bring awareness to an issue and to start <clears throat> conversation. It's not necessarily to make people feel good. It's not necessarily, you know, it's this isn't necessarily a kumbaya moment and can consider the circumstances around which these these players are protesting. That's the whole point. And if people disagree with it, that's fine. The point is to have a conversation about it, not to bring everyone on board necessarily. Well, that and also for people to know why they're protesting, because that's exactly. what I keep talking yeah. about, because yeah. they're missing the, their point. You can still disagree with it, right. but understand what is the real purpose of right. it for both the NFL players who are professionals and these young women who are on the volleyball team. And that's the conversation part. Exactly. Yeah, and the, yeah. the conversation is about inequality in the United States mm. and there, you know, different individuals have different you know, community. The communities that they are involved in have different looks at the, the inequality issue. Um, you're seeing the, you know, just the, the act of kneeling during the national anthem at a sporting event. It's a gesture. It's it's a mode of protest. It is not one specific thing. Uh, Kelly, as you said, you know, in the NFL and Colin Kaepernick, that was one specific piece of inequality that was being protested in the NFL. It is still closely attached to that. But as we're seeing, you know, in Chelsea, it's grown into something else. It's more akin to a sign at a protest that you hold up that says something. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone's something is going to be different. And these yeah. girls have a different take on it and are using the same method mm-hmm. to protest what is the greater inequality scheme of the United States right now? And I also think what's interesting is that the platform that this is happening on, on the athletic field, you know, Mm. athletes, I think people assume, especially, you know, in kind of a high school setting, you know, these aren't necessarily the ones that get political about things. They're not the ones who who get heated on issues like that. And it's actually exciting and interesting to see young people in different realms get engaged and get involved. Here's a quote from one of them I thought was interesting. For me, a majority of us have immigrant parents and they came to the country to provide a better future for us, said Rhyme El Mahid, a first year player. What kind of American dream is there if things are working against our parents all the time? So Mm -hmm. that gives you a sense of what a number of them are are feeling. All right. uh, Over to you, Mike Dean at the Statehouse. 
conversation again about mandatory school bus seat belts. Right. Now, this crops up in a lot of places across the country, and in some states they actually have passed a law that says no school bus can be without it, mm-hmm. even down to the detail of whether or not it's a lap seat belt or one that goes a across three point, the board. Yeah, the more point. effective three-point um, exactly. seat belts, yes. So this is New Bedford Representative Antonio Cabral, and he's been trying to do this for the last 10 years. Yes, uh, <laughs> yep. Representative Cabral has been at this for quite some time. It's one of these issues that, you know, it, it could be a slow burn. And then if it gets leadership's attention or if uh, different resources or if the public opinion moves to a certain extent, it can change. The, this is also the first year in those 10 years that the State Transportation Association of Massachusetts is backing some kind of seatbelt mandate. They have been resisting it for a long, long time. They have a long list of arguments against it, everything from the fact that the way school buses are, are structured and school bus seats if you you know imagine the high back, right. they are safe already. In the case of an accident, there are very few injuries inside the school bus. Most of the injuries take place outside the school bus, but other vehicles or the bus, you know, tragedies like that of kids being in blind spots, things like that. Very few are on the bus. And in the case of a fire or an accident, uh, having young kids potentially without the ability to unlock the seatbelt mm. themselves is an issue that takes up training. STAM, the the School Transportation Authority, they just want the bus driver not to be liable for injuries sustained on seat-belted buses. Uh, if you can imagine you have 50, 60 kids on a bus, even getting them all buckled up is mm. is a tall mm. order, and that would require potentially a bus monitor on there, and that means the district has to pay another adult to be on that bus. So the costs associated with this are daunting, and I think one thing that we're different from other states is we have 351 different municipalities. I believe it's 200 and some some odd different school districts in the Commonwealth, public school districts, and so they would all have to answer this mandate, and they would all have to come up with the $11,000 per bus it would be to retrofit uh, and install these seatbelts. So it's been a long slog. This year is different because the bus transportation folks, and they're the association of all the, the private companies that contract out these buses. Uh, they are actually on board, and it looks like we might get a compromise bill this session or the next. So there are six states, California, Florida, Louisiana, New Jersey, New York, and Texas. How have they managed to get over this, making sure the kids are buckled and dealing with the cost of retrofitting? Because they just couldn't have started straight out. They had to retrofit and then make sure that all the new buses that came online had seatbelts, right? Right. And that's kind of what Massachusetts is looking at. The bill would require retrofitting over a five-year period. That's something that the, the stand people are insistent on. I can't speak to each individual state, but I would say that, you know, much smaller student populations. We are a relatively young state. We have more students than some of the states you mentioned there. And if there are newer buses coming online, it's a lot easier to mandate that new ones have seatbelts than to retrofit the old ones. And there's also a concern that the older of the buses that do actually make up most of the fleet would need to have a lot more work on the undercarriage and reinforcements. It's not just the straps themselves need to be installed. It's Mm. that what is anchoring those straps need to be installed. And that's a lot of undercarriage work, extra steel and reinforced things in the bus. So the other states, I believe it's a combination of just a strict mandate of every new one. And so they've kind of aged with it. I see. Uh, and so now their fleets are mostly full up and uh, the, having funding for it. You know, there are different programs. You know, if a state is flush with cash, which few are, but maybe 10 years ago it was a little different story. Hmm. Um, things would have been a little easier to get the funding to uh, provide for that mandate. Seth, um, mm. because the independent news group covers so many municipalities, oh, some yeah. of which would have to respond to this, <clears throat> in your recollection, can you remember any kind of close 
horrible bus accidents with kids and and how and do you have a sense in some of these communities would they be supportive? Well, I do remember many years ago one accident that happened in Revere where a school bus full of kids was headed to a speech by President Clinton at the mm. time and they kid didn't make it because they got in an accident wow. on the expressway. Was anybody hurt? Nobody was hurt, mm. but they couldn't go. They mm. they were they stayed there for quite some time. I've heard from some parents who who are against this over mm. the years. Um, and especially recently because of the fact, like Mike mentioned, getting the kids with their seatbelts off. So many times the, the emergency is inside the bus and you got to get the kids out of the bus. And there's a lot of kids who can't unbuckle seatbelts. Mm. And, and I think there's a lot of parents worried about that. The schools, the retrofitting, that's huge. Um, a lot of the districts in our area wouldn't have the money to do it. I mean, Boston, we, we talk about that all the time because they are changing the way they bus kids all the time. And will they have money to retrofit their buses? I doubt it. I mean, they're already making sixth graders get on the T. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. That's, that's, a a, that's an 11 or 12-year-old kid out right. in the T in um, right. by themselves, potentially. So I don't know. This is a bigger issue about where does school bus Funding situations go? Yeah, yeah right. Where does it go? Are we going to keep doing it? How are we going to do it for who? But I don't know. I, well, I, it's it's definitely not as easy as you would think. Well, Lauren, you're nodding your head vigorously. Uh, well, <laughs> it, I mean, a lot of thoughts here. Okay. <laughs> I mean, first off, the idea of actually making sure kids, like I'm thinking more like a little bit older, preteen, teenagers, you know, if you tell them to wear their seatbelt, are they actually going to? Mm. And, and through what means are you actually going to encourage them and, and maintain that? But another thought that I had is, is the funding to, you know, retrofit these buses or proactively ensure that these buses would have these seatbelts, is that potentially something that uh, additional money from the millionaire's tax, the the potential mm-hmm. ballot question that could bring in, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into the state that would be hun- specifically dedicated to transportation and education funding. This is a little bit of that sweet spot yeah. where s- school buses <laughs> I don't think are- that will help their <laughs> argument there. I mean, that money that would supposedly be brought in by that tax has been spent 15 times, 15 times yeah. by now by yeah. things, by bills that already need to be paid, I think adding to the burden of of new mandates is the last thing the legislature would do. But let me go where Lauren is going and ask this and ask this question. Then, what about the casino money? Yeah, that, yeah, well, I, yeah. everybody said yeah. the minute well, we have about, casinos. What about the marijuana money? What about <laughs> this? I mean, it's all going to go to health costs. Well, yeah, <laughs> 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 within the casino, there is there are many pots of money, and one is transportation. Yeah. And all you have to do if you're a school district is apply for that money, and if the gaming commission says that's reasonable, you could get the money. For your school district to put belts on buses or even to add buses. I'm just thinking that maybe some new buses could come because guess who's going to be bussing people to the casinos? (laughs) No, I'm being for real. And is there another use? You know, right now we're in a time looking Mm -hmm. across the country where cities are looking at double uses for things. Mm -hmm. That's a way for them to give back twice. You know, okay, so you run people up on charters. They're not coming 24-7. Maybe there's some other times that, you know, you can... Use the buses in a different way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Even if it's field trips or something, I, I, I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, <laughs> okay, but again, you remember these are uh, owned by private companies. School yes. districts don't own their own school buses for the most part. Right. So you know, then these companies, when you take a shuttle from the weekend, it's a big yellow school bus. It's because it's on. A, you know, you're taking it on a Saturday to the casino where it's going to be on the road Monday morning with a bunch of kindergartners in it. So it's it's the same bus. <laughs> I get Seat that, but, but see, th- that's private money from the casinos. That's why I'm going looking at it. Oh right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And okay. if there is a state sub 
subsidy with some of that money, then yeah, yeah. You, you could funnel that hey, into those hello. companies. Just let's try to be creative. Okay. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Mike Dean, Massachusetts State House reporter for WGBH News, The Skeptic, Lauren Dzinski, reporter for Politico, Massachusetts, and editor of Politico, Massachusetts Playbook, and Seth Daniels, senior reporter for the Independent News Group. And we're talking about local news you may have missed this week. Lauren, this is an interesting story that you've put forth about fire chief's concern. Honestly, I never heard about it. Coincidentally, discovered that, Seth, you mm-hmm. wrote about it about a year ago. So I mm-hmm. guess this is now coming into our consciousness. This piece starts off saying from the Dorchester newspaper, the fire commissioner, Joseph Finn, is really being kept up at night, not about the fires themselves, but about something else. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this was a fantastic piece in the Dorchester Reporter from Jennifer Smith, where she sat down with Boston Fire Commissioner Joe Finn and said, OK, you know, wh- what is it that keeps you up at night? And he said, it's cancer. It is the threat and active awareness and presence of cancer in the firefighters you know, the men and women who are, you know, responding in in the city of Boston. And largely that's because of when, you know, these first responders, when these firefighters are responding, they're basically working in ashtrays, to, mm-hmm. to kind of put it in, you know, a little bit of blunt terms there. And there are so many different ways that fire services and fighting fires have changed, look at the different materials that buildings are built with now. There's many more synthetic materials. Things inside the houses burn faster. So if you're constantly being exposed to fires like this and to these different unnatural materials that are burning all the time, you simply being exposed to that increases your risk of of getting cancer. And so now, you know, there's things that the fire department is trying to do to start mitigating that. But exposure to things like this year after year after year just simply increases that risk and that potential. And and that's really what's affecting the men and women of the Boston Fire Department. Well, what I thought was interesting is that the piece mentions that the fires burn much hotter and faster. And of course, we're having this conversation while firefighters in California are fighting so many fires. It's a different kind of fire probably than what would be happening yeah, here. Yeah, it's more of a wildfire as yeah, to a structure fire. Yeah, you still got the ashes and the dust that you mentioned, right? Living, mm-hmm. You're still in the ashtray. Right. This is intense, right? Right, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, there's, and there's certain efforts that fire departments are, are attempting to adopt. You know, there's, there's certain best practices that you can do, things like, you know, washing your neck after a fire because your neck is often part of your gear that's exposed or, Mm. you know, washing your turnout gear after every fire so that that soot and ash isn't stuck on the coat and you're not around that as much. And then there's also, and this is touched on in the piece as well, the city of Boston is building new fire department, you know, different locations Mm. that basically have hot, warm and cool zones that help keep the firefighters away from the certain carcinogenic areas, you know, things like around all of the different trucks and stuff like that, and basically making it so that you can go to a place in the building itself that you're not necessarily exposed to as many of those harsh chemicals as you would be, you know, in in other different firehouses where there's less of those contained areas. Right. So, Seth, when you Mm -hmm. were noting this um, in your piece about a year ago, Mm -hmm. um, what stood out for you? Um, Yeah, well, this was mm -hmm. triggered for us by the death of firefighter Pete Candler in Chelsea, um, way too young, in his 40s, um, with kids and and everything. And it was recognized. It wasn't just supposition. He definitely died because of exposure. And what really came out was the fire union— 
both in Chelsea and nationally had said, you know, it's almost like football players, you know, mm-hmm. where in the old day, oh, I'm tough, you know, I'm going to go out and play without a helmet, you know, or something like that. It's the same mentality for firefighters. Oh, I'm more of a firefighter because I run in without my equipment. They said that has got to stop. And they actually are policing each other. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, no, that is not right. You can't do that. Um, this is dangerous, you know, and, and they're taking their equipment seriously. They're taking the purchase of new equipment and protective equipment seriously. In the old days where you rush into a fire, you know, wearing nothing um, just because you're, you know, the, the best firefighter are over for them. And, and it was a real wake-up call to lose, mm-hmm. um, for many of them, a firefighter who was younger than them. Oof. Yeah. yeah. Mike. Sorry to you know bring it back to to budget issues yes, here, no, but I I, I, I become I was concerned. It back to you, yeah, no. Money, I, yeah. I, again, this yeah. is uh, you know healthcare costs. If you have a lot of firefighters on municipal pensions mm-hmm. under municipal healthcare, and there's a high rate of cancer there, that's a, a giant cost. So anything, any money that can be spent now on preventative measures, mm-hmm. I think is definitely in the best interest of the fire department and the municipality and the firefighters themselves. Like this is something that can and should be prevented because down the road it's gonna gonna hurt yeah. the bottom line. Yeah, I think you're going to be finding more who turn up with this until, you know, I mean, the protective measures are being put in place now, but there are a lot of people who are sick right now. Right, we have a generation to go generation before to go. it works itself out. Yep. Um, and I guess there are new oxygen tanks, too, that help, mm-hmm. but they cost money to, to Mike's um, point. But there appears to be, at least at this moment, support for yes. these expenditures. And and that's yeah. where that's where I think the benefit of... You know, the Boston Fire Department, you you know, you have the commissioner raising issues with it now. And the Boston Fire Department is better situated to equip its, you know, its force with, you know, new items that that can that can work along those lines. It's the smaller departments. It's the volunteer departments that may not mm. necessarily have the money and the resources to, you know, come oh, up wow, to code to be more preventive. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And and so whether or not, you know, that requires some sort of statewide standard or national standard, who knows? But, you know, this is I think this is something that we're only going to hear more about. Hmm. Well, now we have two uh, stories from couple of you about re-envisioning areas of uh, our city mm. that sound pretty exciting. So I'm starting with you, Lauren. Uh, Upham's Corner, village of Dorchester. Looks like it's getting a whole new thing. But there's a quote in this piece by the Dorchester News that uh, from John Barrow saying the city is not replanning the area, but sort of highlighting what's already out there. I'm just, help me with this. It's an enhanced neighborhood is the way they're describing it. Right. So Upham's yeah. Corner is is one of the kind of little neighborhoods within neighborhoods kind of on the border of Roxbury and Dorchester, a little bit near South Bay. It's really kind of this could be a hub of activity. You know, it has the Strand Theater, which is a very old historic mm-hmm. theater in the city of Boston, and has all of these different, you know, parcels that are, you know, vacant. And there's there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of opportunity to kind of, you know, put it in, on, in that spin. So the city is trying to figure out what they can do to invest in it and to upgrade it. They plan to put in a library there. They, they want to, you know, make it, you know, spring forth and, and be this exciting neighborhood like we're seeing in so many other parts of the city. But they're trying to figure out how to do that. Um, this is, you know, there's there's a couple different parcels in that area, including the Leon Electric Building, which is touched on in, um, in the piece itself, also, you know, by the Dorchester Reporter, where it's it's owned by one of these absentee landlords who mm. keeps jacking up the price every time the city says that they're interested in it to 
attempt to make a major profit off of it if and when the city or someone decides to rebuild it and can make the financial investment that the current owner is asking it's it's going to completely change that area because it's a massive parcel of land and you know one thing that's also noted in the piece John Barrows you know a senior person in in the Walsh administration who would be involved in that floated the potential of potentially using eminent domain to yeah. seize that, that property. That was my next question. Yeah, and, well, and, yeah. and but the thing is, is that he, and he he notes, you know, this is said in a public meeting and, you know, Jennifer, the reporter who who was there and, and caught him saying this, you know, he said this will only happen if there is a lot of pressure coming from the neighborhood, if there's, you know, clearly interest in, and, you know, this is this is where community pressure and community interest and community buy-in is so valuable. But that that is now something that is on the table and that is being floated. Yeah, well, Mike Ross had that, I believe, as part of his 13 campaign and a few of the other uh, candidates wanted to take harsher action on, on, on that particular, yeah, on the, the mayoral campaign on that particular parcel. Um, so it's actually, it's a little surprising that it's taken this long for it to come back up since that. I mean, there was a lot, a lot of ideas thrown against the wall in, uh, 2013 and the, the Walsh administration has implemented some of them. Um, not necessarily even just Walsh's, some other, yeah. from his opponents as well. I, you know, I want to say it was Mike Ross, but I think some others also floated the idea of eminent domain for that, um, electrical building, but it's absolutely right. It is on the door. It is literally next door to, to the new commuter rail line uh, on the on the Indigo line, it is steps from um, the Croc Center mm-hmm. down there, which is one of the, the gems that Dorchester has as far as like civic activity and, and community activity. Uh, and yeah, you're right. That I live right by Upham's Corner. It's it's a neighborhood that is going to look a lot different in five years. I think the question is, what does it look like? Um, they want to bring wealth into the area. It, uh, as Lauren said, it is at really the crux between um, parts of Dorchester and parts of Roxbury. It is, you know, the entranceway into the Dudley area. Um, it is key for, it, it could, it could become the new example of gentrification in the city that, you know, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Yeah. And depending on where you stand on that, you know, what kind of people move in, if, if, if that electrical plant becomes, you know, uh, condos, and high end things and, and the, just market rate exactly yeah it's market rate and expensive. and it's not you know I know the mayor's making a lot of efforts for affordable housing um, and workforce housing but even bringing in people at the workforce income level is going to greatly change the uh, the dynamic of of Upham's Corner well I note that in the piece it says uh, that everybody is working um, because they wanted to, to develop without displacement to answer your question yeah. and so the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative is very much involved in this to try to yep. manage all of this stuff um, which so, Barrows used to run right mm-hmm. so. exactly so so two questions one I believe the mayor has uh, mayor Walsh has already signed off on the library. Mm-hmm. So that's a piece that's happening. It's, is that right? It, y'all are nodding so, your heads. Yeah, so, yeah, so there yeah. is a library coming in. Yeah. As far as I understand, they're not sure where exactly it's going to go. It sounds like it is in the the Bank of America building. It's this, it's this beautiful, massive old stone facade building. And mm-hmm. it's not clear if the library will go in the building itself or if the building will be raised and something else will, will be built there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is under the radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with Mike Dean, Lauren Dzinski, you just heard her, and Seth Daniel. And we're talking about stories you have missed from this week's local news. So, Seth, to continue this conversation about mm-hmm. this Upham's Corner thing, sure. Um, if you're talking about pressure from the neighborhood, it seems mm-hmm. to me that the South Bay redevelopment is all the pressure you need. There's, yeah. it, it's there. It happens. Mm-hmm. Um, people are very excited about the things that are that Not are coming, coming in. Yeah. 
Um, I know there is some displacement, but I'm mm-hmm. not seeing it as um, intense. Maybe I'm wrong as I, some other yeah, areas. Yeah, I don't know. I yeah. think this is a story about a, a one of many Dorchester villages or parishes, as they call them, um, that are way underserved for a long time. I used to take my kids to the Upham's Library, and we'd go down to the children's room. It's a, it's a swimming pool. Mm-hmm. It's a sw- it's actually the it's an old swimming pool that's been drained. Wow. So you go down these steps, which used to be the steps into the pool, wow. to get into the children's room. It's bizarre. It's because yeah. it's an old municipal building right. where they used to have pools and, and right. whatever they used to do there. And it's been there a long time. And there's a lot of, like, in Fields Corner in Dorchester, there's another library that's just like, you know, I mean, it's, it's suffering from being so old. I mean, even the schools in Dorchester, you know, you look at some of those and they're more than a hundred years old. Um, they haven't, nothing's been touched in them since like the fifties. So I think that's really like, I mean, there's a lot of kids in Upham's corner and, and a lot of people use the library. Um, you have to go upstairs if you're handicapped, forget Mm. it. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Um, so it's just another example of, uh, you know, just a neglected neighborhood as far as city services and, and a library really will bring things up. Like if you look at Mattapan, they replaced their old library, yeah, which was a similar type of thing yeah. um, with a new one. And it's, you know, it's world-renowned architecture. East Boston did the same thing. They mm-hmm. replaced theirs. It's winning awards for its architecture. And it's drawing people. It's supposed to be it the gathering place. I have to keep reminding people, libraries are not just for books. They're not gathering anymore. places no, no, not for anymore. neighborhoods. And, yes. and, mm-hmm. and the new libraries have separate places for teens, for kids, mm-hmm. for adults, and then in general, community rooms. They really do um, make that that connection with the community. So I think that that's um, that's kind of what you're seeing. I don't know um, gentrification. I, I go through Uphams a lot, and I mean it's it's always sort of had a very good mix of people. And um, I mean there's some beautiful homes that have been yeah um, for for years have been up on that on the hill behind there that mm-hmm. have been restored. Um, well, so. I hope it comes to pass because there's a lot of opportunity there, and it would be nice. And for once, I'd like to see that Strand Theater really, really in in full use. Yes. There have been many attempts, but, you know, another one wouldn't hurt. Mm. Now, meanwhile, uh, Seth, over in your neck of the woods, um, yeah. or one of your neck of the woods, Everett's village area, which yeah. nobody thought was ever going to be anything, <laughs> is now the hip-happening place. It has <laughs> has become that way, and, and the only displacement going on there is, is old industrial, like, crates and things getting out of there and trucks and it's not a it's not a, the village is actually a neighborhood but abutting the village is a highly industrial area that actually was even forgotten by industry for a long time mm. um it used to be a ge plant um so it was very toxic land uh, they destroyed it they left and um that's being cleaned up by by the wind people and they're building a giant park but the big story here is this property owner um jerry barbarian who kind of invests in places that everyone forgets about. Um, his family, um, actually, they, they got sort of like circus-type stuff. Popcorn is what mm. they were into. So they traveled the, the country doing popcorn and events back many years ago, um, based out of Charlestown. And um, when they got wound that business down, he and his brother began investing in these forgotten spots. You know, Charlestown over by Somerville when no one wanted to be there. They mm. own that. And then they decided to go north to Everett, and they bought this property. And he's he's interested in small businesses and innovation. He'll give people a break in order to get that done. So that's given birth to breweries. There's two breweries, a distillery. Um, there's Metro like Rock and Sky Metro Zone. Rock, Sky Zones, the trampolines, Metro Rock, you climb, you know. 
And now he's talking about bringing in axe throwing. So these are axes, and you get into a batting cage, and you throw axes, and actually this is very popular. Whoa. <laughs> Believe me, I never uh, heard of it. Neither did me he. Either. He thought they were crazy, but he looked into it, and it's a real thing. That's awesome. And yeah. in places in places <laughs> where... Going. Yeah. <laughs> in places where people go to breweries and places are hip and happening and up and coming, axe throwing is what they do. Yeah, yeah I guess so. You go to the brewery first, and then the axe throwing? I hope not. Well, I'll tell you, when they climb the rocks, yeah. they go there before and after. Oh, well. <laughs> oh boy. At least but yeah, I mean, and then they actually had a, a major street festival there last month. George Clinton played, you know. Oh, oh P-Funk? P-Funk, George oh, Clinton. Oh my God. <laughs> this okay. Is, uh, this is the... Mr. Barbarian, you're hip. You're, you're hip and <laughs> well, happening. And, and, you know, the, the casino people are, are helping too. They, uh, they okay. contribute to some of that and... Um, it's just a place, you know, it's it was undiscovered. It's literally if you're gonna go to North Station or the Garden, it's it's five minutes. Mm. Wow. It really is. Wow. It's closer wow. than, wow. than most Bostonians are to huh. downtown. Well, Somerville for everyone. I was about yeah. to say, well, <laughs> as George himself would say, and I will not complete the whole quote, free your mind. Look it up, people, <laughs> for what happens after that. Yeah. <laughs> and Mike, there's no budget issues on that one. So you I could you, find some. I, know, I uh, could find some of that casino money <laughs> scumming things up over there. I don't know. All right. Quickly, you got uh, there's a bill passed by the Senate that would increase penalties for improper use of handicap placards. Right. Thank God. I mean, I just there's really people should be axed. Know. You know, <laughs> for Let's doing this. In that cage. <laughs> Come on, yeah, Mike. Uh, there's, there, yes. Basically, there was a, a report by uh, I believe that the Inspector General's office a few years ago, kind of investigating this. You know, based through the RMV. Uh, the most common infraction is people using someone else's placard. You know, we're talking about the ones that go on the. Um, the rearview mirror, uh, it could be, you know, your disabled, you know, spouse or even your late spouse, I think, was a very common one. <laughs> oh, and those placards never really got uh, hung, you know, brought back in uh, They're you know, invalid serial numbers, invalid uh, expiration dates you're supposed to. But uh, they just don't get ticketed that often. And no one really, you know, calls the cops because they think this is inspired, you know, expired, that kind of thing. So, you know, in uh, areas where traffic and parking are very key issues, which I think we both know <laughs> of some yes. communities where yeah. parking is the most vital civic yes. force there is. Every community. Okay. When, when you see a fraudulent uh, placard like this, you get kind of irritated. So yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the Senate pushed this one through. Uh, it's been, you know, suggested for quite a while. I think it's the second or third session that it's been up. Um, no real signal of whether or not the House is also going to move it forward. But uh, yeah, it would, uh, and you could get your light, your driver's license suspended if you're caught using the wrong placard. It would crack down on, um, you know, the, the forms you need to submit for eligibility. Uh, there were some incompa- incompatibilities between what the RMV required and what other areas of government required. It was something like, um, Arthritis would have been something that got yeah. you one under one set of rules, but not on the other set of rules. Mm-hmm. So, so they're going to streamline that. that yeah. mm-hmm. What's eligible? Um, yeah, and I, I think I hit all the bases on that one. Anything right. I'm forgetting, Kelly? From Good. what I from was what there I any money? Did you, could you get fined money? To <laughs> yeah, they're de- yeah, they're absolutely <laughs> increasing the uh, the fines on the infractions as well. So hopefully uh, that will yeah. give some my, incentive for enforcement. Yeah, my favorite stories on this was in East Boston the, years ago in the previous administration. They had a lot of generational placards and out of like the eight spaces on the street seven were handicapped spaces oh, yeah okay <laughs> something you don't give up no right. well i want to squeeze this in uh, in the few seconds that we have left and uh 
this is a great story, Seth, about mm-hmm. the Church of the Covenant yeah. trying to preserve their Tiffany glass windows. I, yes. Where have I been? I didn't know they had them. This weekend, they're having fundraisers. Yep. It's a big celebration, 150th anniversary, yeah. and they've been working to make all the rest of us know that they have Tiffany windows and also raise money for the for the care and restoration. Yeah, these are very expensive windows. Um, one of them is going to cost like 135000 um, this is a Tiffany, the great glass company. They were put in years ago in the 1890s when most of their congregation was illiterate, and it was a way for them to see the, the stories, uh, the stories yeah. up there. And, and they are beautiful. And it's not just that. There are also glass lanterns, and there's extremely interesting painting in there, and they're trying to restore it all. It's, it's the corner treasure. of Newberry and Berkeley Streets right. in the back base. So yes, and the women's it. lunch place is underneath. A lot mm-hmm. of people know that. So mm-hmm. it's... Um, yeah, it's quite a place, and it deserves to be um, to be preserved. I like a little good news at the end. Nothing yes. Mike can complain about. And, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> all private money. All, all private, private money. money. <laughs> so thank you all for joining me today. Challenge. <laughs> Mike Dean is a Massachusetts State House reporter for WGBH News. Lauren Dzinski is a reporter for Politico, Massachusetts, and the editor of the Politico, Massachusetts Playbook. And Seth Daniel is a senior reporter for the Independent News Group. Coming up... Most people know Thurgood Marshall as a towering figure of intellectual and legal authority, the first African-American to sit on the Supreme Court. But few know about his years as a courageous civil rights lawyer. Now one of his little-known but impressive victories is chronicled on the big screen in the new movie, Marshall. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 